This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church. So we're carrying on with our summer of celebration and today might look a tiny bit different. I thought as it's the summer, I thought as we've got kind of some of our youth, some kids in the room, um, we'd go for a little bit more kind of, I guess, an interactive sort of thing. So there will be a couple of questions which require you to talk to someone, um, possibly even a little bit of shouting out. Um, But the other reason is, if I'm honest, um, the last 18 months or so, I've probably developed the attention span of a goldfish. And so uh, for me, I need something to help me engage as well rather than just listen. So first question, um, which um, if you're watching in, feel free to kind of uh, have a think or talk to the person as well. Um, When is a moment that you either most celebrated something or felt the most celebrated? Now, um, I don't know what you chose. Perhaps it was um, kind of particular achievement, either in school, either something maybe sporting, in work. Um, it might be something family-related. It might be a wedding, a, um, a birthday. It might be the birth of a child, anything like that. Um, and I'll just take a moment and kind of maybe think about, as you were sharing that story, what happened inside of you. Um, I, I mean, looking around the room, I can see a few smiles coming. That might equally be, Nick, what are you doing? You're a Muppet. Um, but, but actually, for me, when I was thinking about that moment, I, I kind of noticed this kind of a glow, a kind of a sense of kind of warmth, a sense of kind of happiness, a joy almost. Um, I'm equally aware that for some people, there might be kind of those moments are tinged with perhaps a level of sadness if circumstances have changed. But whatever you thought about, whatever you felt in that moment, as you were thinking or sharing. Just notice that, because I think it proves that the power of memory, the power of remembering things, is actually really important in terms of how it changes us, in terms of how it affects us. So as we move into this summer of celebration moment, remember that, I guess. Remember that remembering is important. So the topic today is going to be Passover. Now, uh, kids or young people in the room, can anyone tell me, think of the hyperlink, what does Passover mean in your mind? Can anyone, get, can anyone say? Oh, over here, amazing. Is it when uh, Hebrew children were saved from death? Yeah, bang on, amazing. Round of applause. So yeah. Passover um, is a word which kind of biblically relates to that time when Hebrew children were saved from death. So a little bit of the backstory, you can find all of it in kind of the first 10, 12 chapters of Exodus, but we'll just summarize because we don't have time to read all of it. Um, so the people, of, uh, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, God's people, um, descendants of Abraham, were, were, were in Egypt at the time. And they'd been there for about 400 years. Um, and after about 400 years, so Joseph, you remember, Technical Dreamcoat, all that sort of stuff, um, uh, had kind of had been there. They'd gone into Egypt, and they'd been living quite well. They'd grown. They'd been blessed. God had blessed them. They'd, they'd multiplied in number, promises, which you might remember, be fruitful, be multiplied. I will bless you. All those sorts of things are happening. But then a pharaoh comes who isn't like the previous ones. He looks at this growing number of Hebrew uh, men, women, and children and thinks, you know what, there's a threat here. And so what does he do? He decides we're going to oppress them. We're going to effectively cull them. We're going to kill them. And so sadly and heartbreakingly, tragically, what happens is that he he makes this order that that all all the kind of children, all the male Hebrew children born at that time we're going to be killed. 
there's a genocide, an infanticide. And God, in his mercy, he saves one guy, one little boy uh, called Moses, um, and, and Moses is then raised as, as Pharaoh's own son, as a member of the royal household. But in the way that is often uh, the way in many, many of us, many biblical characters, Moses also has character flaws. And so he, he, he's one day he goes along and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster oppressing, uh, oppressing an Israelite, a Hebrew. Um, they're all of he, the Hebrews had been enslaved at this time. They were oppressed. There was injustice rampantly going on. And Moses then murders someone. He flees, he's exiled, and God calls him and says, you're going to be the guy through whom I'll save my people. So we then get into kind of these, these ten plagues, as they're called. That, you might remember that. Um, and so you get nine of these plagues where, where God, through Moses, is saying to Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh hardens his heart time after time after time. He's given every opportunity possible to... To, uh, to change, for, to repent, to, to allow freedom to come to the, to the Israelites. But he's, he says no. He says no, no, no. And so it gets this moment, nine plagues, which are effectively kind of these almost like battles between God as, as, as Yahweh, the, the one true God, and kind of the Egyptian ideas of God and the Egyptian nation. And it gets this point where the final 10th plague will basically be a moment of justice. God, God says that, look, if you don't let my people go, then just as you killed the Israelite boys, so too will the firstborns of Egypt be killed. It's an uncomfortable thought, don't get me wrong, as we think about it. Like, Let's not pretend that that's something easy to think about. But, but what we should also remember is that God is merciful as well as just. And so you have Pharaoh being given time after time after time after time the opportunity to turn, the opportunity to change, the opportunity to stop the rampant injustice, slavery, and oppression that is going on. But he doesn't. And so in many ways, God's judgment then is the consequence of his and the rest of Egypt's sin. And what we also ought to remember when we read moments like that, which seem quite harsh to us and seems, seem like they don't quite make sense, is actually there's a, there's a simple truth inside of the Bible in places like Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. That actually God's, God's perfect justice, God's perfect judgment is that he can't stand sin in any way, shape or form. And that there is a judgment over that. And so in many ways, that's why this final plague, this final curse in many ways, this final judgment is one that in many ways is, is the judgment over all of us. And so what happens is you have this warning, you have this, this plague that's, that's been warned of when God will come and strike down the Egyptian firstborn. But he says that there'll be a way in which, the, which his people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, will be saved. That their firstborn won't be killed. What is it? It's through the Passover. And so in Exodus 12, um, you, have a, you have this command where they're to, to, to take a lamb. Sorry, vegetarians. Sorry, vegans. They're to take a lamb. They're to kill it. They're to, to dip, dip, um, dip something into the blood and wipe it over their door frames. 
and then they're to eat the rest of it in a, in a kind of a, a commemorative meal. They're to, to eat the rest of the lamb. They're to eat it with unleavened bread to signify that they're ready to go. They're, they're then to kind of build on it and do various things in time, but it's commanded inside of Exodus 12 as something that they will do forever, that they'll remember this moment time after time through, through repeating this story in eating the lamb, in eating the unleavened bread. It becomes the feast of unleavened bread. And so what happens that night the Lord comes, and everywhere where there's the blood of the lamb over the doorframe, God passes over them. And so we get the Passover. Now, just think about that, that phrase, the blood of the lamb protects them. Anyone got any ideas where you recognize that? Yeah, shout out. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> And so, so really, kind of, and this is how the Bible works, that you get these almost like hyperlink moments where, where one thing you hear and it clicks your mind into something else. And so actually, in the Passover, what we see is a prophetic promise of what is going to happen later. You see something like um, the way in which Jesus, Romans 5.9, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall be saved by him from the wrath, the judgment of God? That's literally the Passover, isn't it? Or Revelation 7.14, where the church is described as they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, so we have this really, really central moment in the story of God's people, the Passover, that helps point us towards God's saving plan, God's saving promise, time and time again. And the Israelites were commanded in a number of different places, happens in Exodus 12, happens in Numbers, happens in Leviticus, that they're to celebrate the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's later called, um, every single year as a way of remembering what God has already done for them, of who he is, of what he has done, and what he promises also to do. Why? Why would God ask them to repeat a, f a feast, have a festival, a meal about something that he's already done? Because ultimately, remembering is really important. Celebrating through remembering who God is. Celebrating through remembering what God has done. Celebrating through remembering what he will do for us is so important and helps us to celebrate in turn, to find joy. So we get tracking a little bit forward um, through the rest, of the rest of the Old Testament, we get to the time of Jesus. Now, Jesus is a first century Jewish guy. And so he too celebrates the Passover. So we get to Luke 22, um, which if you've got your Bibles to, why don't you turn to? Um, and so Jesus is wanting to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover with his people. So let's take a look and read of what happens in Luke 22, starting from verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, where would you have us prepare it? He said to them, well, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. 
Now, this is one of those wonderful little kind of like gospel moments where actually it's a crazy moment which it just kind of glosses over. So they went, they found it just as he said. Um, and they prepared the Passover. So you have Jesus clearly having a plan here and prophetically saying, you know what, this is what's going to happen. And they come and they celebrate the Passover. So they're having their meal. Um, verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table. Now, this isn't relevant to the sermon, but that language I always find funny because it sounds like we're suddenly in Yorkshire. Now, he reclined at table. Um, it's, actually, it's actually just kind of like the Greek idiom word, which is just translated a bit funny. It means they're sitting down. But he reclined at table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, just take a moment to notice what's going on there. Jesus is actively using the Passover meal. He, he's, he's, he's using this kind of ceremony, this, this festival, this, this, this remembrance moment to then teach something about himself to his disciples. He's announcing to them that, you know what, the time really has come. My death is about to happen. That he actually is going to be the once and for all Passover lamb. That he is the one by whom, through his blood, which is poured out, that they and all of us will be saved for now and all of the rest of eternity from the judgment of God. He knew what was going to happen, but he still asked them to take the meal. He still asked them then to, to take the bread, to take the cup, and do this in remembrance of me. So I guess kind of you might recognize then what happens here as communion as the Lord's Supper, or maybe the Eucharist, if you want the really fancy name. We have, in turn, Jesus taking one meal that's to be repeated and to be remembered, and using it to announce something of him and instructing his followers to do the same thing. Take the bread, take the cup, and remember me. In the person of Jesus, I guess, and when we think about communion, we see that in his life, his death, his resurrection, that we have a once and for all proof that God loves us. That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, that he will do whatever it takes to have relationship with us. That, that he loves us so much that he will go to the point of death on the cross, that for the joy set before him, he will endure the cross. Why? So that we can have relationship with him. So that we can know that actually at the end of the day, darkness will never have the last word. Because he's already defeated death itself. That his blood poured out so freely, so graciously for us, then covers us in turn. So that we may know that we are loved. We may know that we have peace. We may know that there is hope no matter what. Because he is already already accomplished it because he has already been poured out for us. So what does all of this mean? How can the stories of Passover and then communion help us as we think about this idea of a summer celebration? 
Well, I think there's, there's about three, three things that God really spoke to me in. And the first one um, would be this. Build a habit of remembering. In both the Passover, Exodus 12, and then uh, the Last Supper, Luke 22, it's also in Mark and uh, Matthew and John, um, you have this divine command from Jesus and God saying, do this regularly, repeat it, remember me, build a habit of doing it. When we take communion, it's a way of forcing the attention off ourselves because we're literally reenacting something that reminds us of who Jesus is. Doing things that help us to remember who God is, what he has done and what he has promised to do are so helpful because they force the attention off ourselves and off our circumstances and remind us exactly of who God is. It shifts our focus. It causes us to remember the things that might help us to celebrate because actually it's not really about us. It's about what God has already done. What could it look like, I guess, for you to, to, to build a habit of remembering into your, into your lives? It might be taking communion more regularly at home. I remember as I was growing up that sometimes around the dinner table, my mum and my dad were Christians, we'd, we'd, we'd take communion together. And they were really special times. They were. Because it was something we did together to remember who Jesus was. It might be that that's something you could do as a household, as a family, um, when you're in community. Right? I mean, I'll be honest, we would do it today, but kind of because we're just mindful of, um, of kind of where people are at with COVID, we probably recognize that, that sharing a cup is probably not the best idea just yet. Um, so my encouragement would be that if, if hearing this encourages you, perhaps do it later as you're, having, as you're having your lunch. Why not take communion? Remember Jesus. Could you do it more regularly, I guess? It might be something a little bit different. Um, it might be just kind of um, either, either with someone in your house. Um, it might be with a friend. You could just ask each day, what are you grateful for? What, what are you grateful to God for? Um, it might be something, something a little bit more kind of formal in some ways. Um, in years gone by, Christians would, would literally organize their lives through a calendar that helped them to remember. We, we have a level of that. We know Easter. We know Christmas. Um, but they would have things like Holy Week. They'd have things like Advent. They'd have things like Pentecost. As all of these times to remember the biblical stories and how God has worked great things for his people. Now, I'm not saying that we should go and raid Holy Trinity Lambby of all of their like, books of common prayer or something, but actually, are there ways that you could, you could use some resources that are really readily available just to help you remember God a little bit more? So many helpful devotional books that I'm sure community leaders and the leaders here would be able to point you towards, which just help us to remember God a little bit more in our day-to-day -day lives. So, Little turn to the person next to you. How could you remember God more regularly? So if the first one is build a habit of remembering, the second one could be, could be this. Celebration is best done with others. Think about both the Passover and the Last Supper. They're community events. They're sit down around a table doing something with others. There's something in celebrating, I think, where if we're around other people, if we're around doing things that, that collectively, corporately make us celebrate, that it helps us. And 
the reality is God really, really wanted his people to get hold of this because in, in kind of Israel's yearly calendar, they, they literally had about seven or so different feasts that they were to regularly take in order festivals, parties, basically, to remember something of who God is, whether that was around the harvest, whether it was remembering something that he'd done. Whatever it was, they were literally told, have a party, celebrate, enjoy, this is good, enjoy. You then get things like every seven years, the land would celebrate through the year of the Sabbath. Every 50 years, you'd get the you'd get the, the year of Jubilee, which is just this huge party where, where any debts were forgiven, where, any, where people kept in slavery were set free. These huge moments where God was just saying, celebrate, enjoy, remember, together. And so for, for me, as I was thinking about this, I just encourage you, celebrate with others. If there are things going on in, 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 our, in, our, in our friends and our family members' lives and our church family life, let's remember to celebrate others. Celebrate what God is doing and enjoy that. Finally, the final point perhaps is this. Celebration doesn't always have to start from a place of happiness. I'll be honest, um, in the last kind of 12 to 18 months, I've probably found it the hardest period that I ever have in my life um, through a mixture of kind of um, work pressures, uh, some family circumstances, and probably that little thing called COVID. Um, like, it's generally been really tough, and I've noticed moments where there have been kind of anxiety and physical moments of that, um, stress keeping in, and also just periods where either myself or Becky have, I've just been low. And, and, and it has been really tough. And, and I'm aware that for so many people in the room or watching in or listening that, that actually that there has been a lot going on where life isn't easy. Um, and, and I don't want to pretend that kind of I, I can understand that, but, but I, think, I think if I'm honest, when kind of I then hear things about ce- like summer of celebration or, 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 or joy, I find it tough because I'm like, I don't feel like this. My life isn't looking like this. And, and, and I think then that there can kind of be this presentation or this image, at least in my mind, of, well, if I really understand the gospel, if, if basically I'm a good Christian, then actually I should be eating everything that comes my way with quite a big smile on my face and skipping along singing the joy of the Lord is my strength. And on some sort of like little cloud of happiness and like bumbling around on it. And, and I know that's nonsense, but yet it can still feel like that. And, and for some people listening, or for all of us at different times of our lives, there are going to be moments where celebrating isn't easy because actually things going on for us in turn are, are just difficult. And, and the Bible doesn't really kind of pull any punches around that. Like, if you read through something like the Psalms, you'll just see time and time again where basically it's saying, God, life is pretty hard right now. What's going on? Help, please, something, anything. Help, help, help. And so what does that mean in terms of joy? What does that mean in terms of celebration? Perhaps it isn't always rooted from that place of happiness. Final um, question, bit of a show of hands on this time. Is there a difference 
do you think between happiness and joy? So between joy and happiness. If you think there is, hand up. If you think there isn't, keep your hand down. Okay, so probably loosely, uh, loosely we might say there is. I'm not going to claim here to be some sort of emotional psychologist or, um, or particularly wonderful kind of therapist in that sense. But I guess I'd just say I wonder where there is, because I guess happiness in some ways is, is, are those moments where kind of we have the endorphins pummeling around our body and we just, just feel pretty great, to be honest. Life, life is good. But biblically speaking, joy seems to be a little bit different than that. We have these verses like in Nehemiah 8, where it says the joy of the Lord is my strength. And, and when that comes in, actually, is, is just as God's people are crying and weeping. There's something about joy that, that in biblically speaking, that, that is rooted more in who God is and the fact that he is joyful rather than our present lived circumstances. God, God doesn't really promise in the Bible to give us happiness. He, he doesn't say, you know what, I'm just going to make you really, really happy right now. You're going to have a period where just everything's going to be lovely and easy. Like You're going to be so happy all the time. Actually, what you get is time and time and time and time and time again, you get God promising to be with us. God promising to give us himself in the middle of those hard moments. And so I just wonder if, if there's something in us thinking about a celebration where, where it just needs to shift our focus that actually we can still celebrate even when things are going up the creek, I guess. Because you get something like Jesus saying in the Gospels, what good is it to gain the whole world, i.e. have a cracking life but lose your soul? And just before that is whoever must whoever would gain his life must lose it first. Someone like, um, there's a German theologian called Dietrich Bonhoeffer who, who lived and fought against um, the Nazi party in World War II. He, he once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Cheery stuff. But in the, in the middle of all of that, time after time and time again, you get this promise of God with us. The gospel is not God promising that he will give us a good time. It is that he will promise us to give us himself. And so actually when we start to think about who God is, what he has done and what he promises to do, it shifts, shifts our focus off our circumstances. You see, because what we see throughout all of scripture is that God is good God is kind, God is merciful, God is loving, God is gracious. God has made a way already. God promises that eternity will be forever glorious, forever wonderful, that there is perfect peace, there is perfect love, there is perfect joy for all of the rest of time because of him and because of what he has done. Passover, the Last Supper, Jesus himself promises us that there is something more than this because God has already stepped in and God has already changed the situation for us. That is where good news really comes. That is what can help us to celebrate in the way that we have been because it just forces us to flick our minds up to who God is. And for me personally, over the last kind of 18 months or so, that's what kind of God has been challenging me on a near daily basis to do. Of like, well, who am I in this? Oh, but God. But God and what Christ has already done for us. 
being able to celebrate, uh, being able to find joy, doesn't mean that life always has to be easy, that, that we always have to be happy or, or, or life has to look as if it's particularly hopeful. I mean, think of Passover and the Last Supper. In both circumstances, God hadn't done anything at that point. Like when he said, eat the Passover, he hadn't saved them already, had he? Or the Last Supper, Jesus hadn't died and hadn't risen from the dead, but he still invites them to receive the promises by faith. And so there's something in accepting that God himself has done something for us, that God has made a way, receiving that in faith that invites us then to find reason to celebrate. Ultimately, Passover, the Last Supper, I guess they ask us, have we really understood who God is? Because if we understand that God is for us, that nothing and no one can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ, then we have hope. We can find joy because actually it's not about us. It's about the fact that we have a great high priest for a brother who is also our perfect Passover lamb who has made a way by his blood and we're covered in that. End of. And so as we finish, I guess it's the challenge today is let's remember. Let's be a people who remember as we celebrate. Why don't we pray? Jesus, thank you. Um, thank you that you are our Passover lamb. Thank you that, that you have made a way for us once and for all to know the Father. Thank you that we were invited into, into perfect love, into perfect peace, into perfect hope, into, into joy himself. Thank you that we are given you. We are given the helper in our lives. Thank you for the way in which time after time after time in, in the story of your, your engagement with the world, it is about the fact that you have made a way. It's about the fact that you have saved us. Not because of what we've done, not because we've, we've earned anything, not because we deserve it. In fact, we know that we stand rightfully under, under judgment, but you bore that yourself. The blood of the lamb covers us. That just as the, the Israelites were covered by the blood in the doorframe, we now are covered in the blood of the eternal perfect lamb. Once and for all. Perfect, spotless, and clean. So I pray that as, as we go out from here, as we go about our lives, that we would remember you. That when things are going well, we'd celebrate. That when things are actually more difficult, that we can still find hope, we can still find joy in knowing that you have made a way and that darkness won't have the last say. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for the fact that all the promises of God are yes and amen and that nothing can separate us from you. And we just pray, Lord, be with us 